Brandy Collinborn is an accomplished artist and refinishing teacher. We talk with her today about how she is managing during this tumultuous time in the world, as well as dive into discussion of some of her favorite furniture refinishing projects. And then we put a crescendo on the conversation as she offers up several pieces of advice to fellow refinishers. Do you ever wonder if you are cleaning brushes correctly? Well, we hear from Sarah Hollister-Jessick on how she cleans her brushes. She is an expert on many things, and one is taking care of her paintbrushes. She actually has a few brushes that are over 25 years old. In Newsworthy, we have a few exciting reminders, opportunities for you to get recognized. I'm your Zebra podcast host, Lane Ball. Welcome to the Zebra Blogs Before and After Furniture Refinishing Podcast. Every month on thezebrablog.com, we feature a furniture refinishing artist. It's an opportunity for you to get to know them better, and we get to showcase their extraordinary work. This month's featured artist has been refinishing furniture now since 2016. She is incredibly gifted and showcases her abilities with every piece she turns out. They are creative, unique, and definitely a one-of-a-kind. This month's artist was our first place winner in our 2018 Zebra One-of-a-Kind Refinishing Contest. She is known for her teaching abilities and has done multiple furniture refinishing tutorials. Just read her reviews. She is praised by many. She loves new opportunities and co-hosts a podcast with her good friend Chris Donna called The Paint Cast. You can find it on YouTube and Spotify. I'm really excited to spend time talking to our April 2020 featured artist, Brandy Collinborn of Brush by Brandy. Welcome, Brandy. Hi, Lane. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for that really flattering introduction, too. I've been looking forward to this, and I know our listeners are as well. They're eager to hear from you. Now, how are you today? I'm doing okay. So, you know, we've been in this quarantine situation for about a month now, and it's been rough. I didn't realize how rough it was until... Um, we had a friend come over to bring us her kitchen cabinet doors. And when she left, I was, you know, on the verge of tears, like, please don't go. I need human contact. <laughs> Even the usual trip out to Target isn't as fulfilling as it used to be. I <laughs> know. I was telling, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, it's so odd to go out to the grocery store and you see people, but it's like you look at people, make eye contact and then people kind of go on. It's almost like nobody knows how to be in this kind of thing except be quarantined. So when you are around people, you want to be with them. But then, you know, you know, we're supposed to keep that six foot distancing. So it has been a challenge for all. And it's, I think it's in one of those, like you just said, it's been a month now. And I think, you know, early on, people were like conquered down. We can do this. And I think now it's starting to really wear on people, but hopefully everybody will hang tight and this will be over soon. That was really well said. That was really well said. So I, I just, my husband's been doing most of the shopping for us and that's um, just so I can stay home with our kids. And so I finally went out the other day because I needed to get some stuff for their Easter baskets and that's usually a mom job. But just the social cues are so much different. I wasn't mm -hmm. sure how to interact with people. So in the store, everybody kind of sidesteps you when they see you coming, like they deliberately avoid you. And then if you accidentally get too close or make eye contact with somebody, um, you know, you're not sure. And then it was like a 50-50 mix of some people were wearing masks and other people yeah. were not. So this was just at Target, but even bagging, they wouldn't do our bagging for us. You had to do your own bagging, but you had to keep all your stuff in the shopping cart. Just all these little social cues were 
completely different than anything I've known before. So, And it, it is one of those things, too, that, I mean, there's so many things you realize when you get in this kind of situation, what you're grateful for. Even being able to spend such, you know, an immense amount of time at home gives you the ability to obviously to, to spend more time with our families, which is a huge plus. But being apart from other people outside of home, you just, you, you know, sometimes we take those relationships for granted. And uh, yeah. my wife was just saying, I cannot wait till this is over and we can have friends over and have a meal, you know, and share a meal with other people. You know, boy, you really appreciate because we just, we have so much in this country and, and in other well-developed countries, you know, and we take those things for granted. So certainly one of the advantages I think is that we'll start appreciating other people even more than we had, you know, because we were without them for so long now through this. Yeah, it's made me want to nurture my relationships a little bit more, if anything, um, you know, to get back to just at people. I, and I'm not really a people person. So to see that side of myself is like, wow, this really is having an impact. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah, I was speaking of the grocery store. You talk about um, your husband doing a lot of the, you know, going out and, and purchasing things. Uh, we've done that here. You know, I'll, I'll go out and, and that way we don't have multiple people going out. But it was almost kind of, sort of comical because I typically don't do grocery shopping. I have done in the past. My <laughs> wife is an excellent cook. So she gives me this list. <laughs> she was so kind because she she gave me this diagram list of the grocery store. <laughs> Like where things would be in the grocery store. <laughs> so, so I've got this sheet, you know, and I'm walking around trying to find these things. And But now, because it's been, you know, like you said, almost four weeks, it's like, I know where everything's at now. I said, just make my list now and I can, you know, I'll be able to find it. Okay. But, it uh, is funny because yeah. he's been going out. Um, I don't have to make him a, a map, thankfully, but your wife is very thorough. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, but because I usually do most of the shopping, he'll come and, you know, push the cart or whatever. But I put all the stuff in there and he came home with stuff that I'm like, we don't we don't buy this. This has never been in our house before. Why did you bring this home? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not criticizing at all because I'm so appreciative that he's willing to do that. But um, <laughs> some of it I was like, um, I don't know what we're going to do with this, but OK, you did good. <laughs> well, she asked me that uh, I think it was the last time she said, now, when you get to some of the freezer section, she's like, look and see what you think we could possibly use. Like maybe, you know, meals. And I'm still, I'm thinking, I just, I'm just not good at that. I mean, she has yeah. the ability. I, I, I have the ability to open up the refrigerator and see only what I see. She has the ability to open up the refrigerator and see all kinds of meals. <laughs> I mean, she can make a, a great meal out of virtually nothing, but, um, I know one time we FaceTimed at the grocery store and I just kind of walked around, you know, saying, Hey, wait, stop me if you see anything that you think we should get. But, um, that's a good idea. Uh, we have our three boys are home. And so number one, three kids, any three kids, but then they're, they are all our boys and we are flying through food. So when essentials yeah. were hard to get, like we can, we just started being able to get eggs and milk and things like that are not scarce anymore. Um, but toilet paper still is. And we've got three kids at home from school and we are flying through the essentials. So it got a little a little scary when we couldn't get them for a while. Yeah, I'm surprised with the toilet paper. I noticed that too. Just the last time I was at the store, the toilet paper aisle was still empty. I guess they're having a hard time playing catch up, you know, because I think those those folks that, that sort of emptied the shelves created sort of a scare and now... And, and so everybody bought because it's like 
oh my goodness, what's going on? You know, we got to get toilet paper. Boy, it's it's still, I, I would have thought by now there would have been, you know, sufficient um, toilet paper on those shelves, but they're still, they're still hard to find. Yeah, we have friends that have, like, I'll get a message every once in a while. Hey, have you found any? Where did you find some? We're looking. So I know that there's still families out there that are, you know, they're just starting to run out of that month supply that you may keep in the house and, and looking for where you can get it. We were able to go online and um, we have a Sam's Club membership. And if I check throughout the day, um, they would just pop up randomly and they'd be available for like five minutes. You could throw one in your mm-hmm. cart and check out. And so we were able to get an extra package, but it's only one per order. And that, and you know, I'm still a little scared that if this, that gives us <laughs> another month, but well, I guess that's one of the advantages of living out in the country is uh, you've got uh, you've got leaves, right? <laughs> of course, are they even out yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I hope it doesn't come to that. And I'm yeah, a painter, so I have a lot of rags in my garage. Worst case scenario, I could use those. <laughs> I think we'd go there before we went to the leaves. By the way, Lane. I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we have more po- more poison oak than I'd like to find out too. <laughs> I was going to say, you got to make sure you know what those leaves are before you use them. I have an interesting yeah. story with my with my grandmother many years ago, but I won't go there today, but uh, she learned a lesson the hard way. Another time. Another time. Exactly. <laughs> you live in California, but you also have some acreage. I mean, that's those two usually don't go together. No, they definitely do not. So we're native Californians. We've lived uh, here our whole life. My husband and I have known each other since we were kids, and we grew up in a fairly, you know, populated area. That's the most common is is higher density living here. You know, we moved around a lot. We lived in apartment complexes. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so our dream was to build our own house. And we had bought a house a few years ago that we thought was going to be our dream home that we were going to fix up. And it was on a little bit of land. And we got in, we got knee deep into the uh, remodel and we're like, you know, we're fixing someone else's mistakes every step of the way. This is never Mm. going to be the house we want it to be because we're compromising on everything. And so we ended up selling that house and took a leap of faith and we bought a vacant lot, five acre lot. We're about 40 minutes outside of Sacramento between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe area. Mm-hmm. So we're below the snow line, um, but still we're in this tiny little pocket town that has five acre minimum lot sizes. So we have five acres, but still close enough to civilization that I can get to Target within 10 or 15 minutes and Costco and, you know, there's mm-hmm. libraries and um, we're not, we're not cut off. I, actually, if you go across the street from my house, it's a golf course. So, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> so yeah, it sounds rural, but, um, but we're not cut off from society by any means. Um, and so we bought this lot and then we found a, an architect and we designed our house, looked through, um, you know, I would stay up at night just looking through thousands of floor plans on Pinterest and on the internet and what would I change about this one? And what about that mm-hmm. one? And um, what were a must has it made us really evaluate how we live as a family. And um, that was a really cool process to be able to design our own house. Um, what rooms did we want to have? Um, what were, you know, extras that we'd like to have? Um, and so we designed our house with this architect, it came out and broke ground and um, about a year later, we moved into a shell. We had a, a contractor build it to a shell. 
um, mm-hmm. which means that it was done through drywall, but we had no, there was no cabinets, no bathrooms, no nothing when we first moved in. And we moved into this vacant shell with our three kids, started putting the house together on the inside. And, and so that's been a longer process than I thought it would be. Um, I think it always is, but, yeah, but honestly, <laughs> I have to say from where we came from as kids to where this is, this is our dream. We made our dream come true. We are living in mm. our dream home and it's a sense of settled that I've never had before. Like, I don't feel like we need to look anymore. That's, that's such a good feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I didn't know if we'd ever have it because our last house we lived in for 10 years and it was home. But I started seeing the neighborhood kind of take a downturn and we weren't that thrilled with the schools. Thankfully, we got into a charter school off of a lottery system um, that let us stay longer than I thought we would. But but I never felt like, you know, this is the, this is it. This mm-hmm. is where we're going to stay. Um, and so I finally feel like I could see us staying here through raising our kids and that's a good feeling. Well, it sounds like, too, you've got the best of both worlds to be able to have access to you know, stores and, and town, but yet to have that five acres. I mean, five acres is a, a nice size of property to, um, to have sort of the privacy that you want and ability to do things on the property as far as expand with gardens or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do in that area. Are they, is this a sort of a woodsy piece of property? Um, we have a lot of oak trees, so we're we're primarily mm. white oaks. We had to clear a lot of it to put the house on. So we cleared about thirty trees to put the house down. But but because we're in a neighborhood, so our neighborhood um, it's a, a circle neighborhood with three gates, mm-hmm. and everybody's on a five acre parcel. Now all of these parcels were developed in the eighties and nineties. People built the houses on them, but mm-hmm. this lot sat for the the people we bought it from owned it for you know, 15 years uh, through the market crash. They were hoping to get, Mm. you know, the land value back and it never came back. Mm -hmm. So they sat on this lot in the middle of a neighborhood, but all the homes, all the uh, other five acre lots around us are developed. So it's, it's not, you know, we don't get, you know, they're out here, but we don't get like mountain lions and it's not heavily wooded, Mm -hmm. um, but we get deer and turkeys and we're putting in a pool right now. That's our outdoor project. And then, you know, we have mm-hmm. bowls. We want to have gardens and stuff. But it's funny how all that stuff gets kind of pushed to the side. And by the time we get it, it'll probably be 10 years from now that we finally have a garden. But there's so <laughs> many things to do out here. Yeah, you, I bet your boys love that property. Oh, it's it's so awesome. It's so awesome to be able to just say, go outside. And I don't worry about where they're going. They just go. Uh-huh. And they, you know... They stay on our property or even if they go out into the street because it's a circle neighborhood with, you know, the three gates, they can stay in the gates and there's no cars. So it's nice that I just, they can just go and they don't have to ask me, you know, where and what they can do. And, um, you know, we put up a a tree swing for them this last week and they've got a trampoline out here. And I don't know, watching boys play on land is just, uh, they were building a sign yesterday out of scrap wood and... (laughs) It's just they have this creativity that's really awesome. To see. That's so satisfying. Well, how did how did you manage your time, or how do you manage your time between building a house and your finishing business, as well as raising three boys with your husband? I mean, that is uh, talk about having your hands full. It's been a lot, and uh, my husband works full time, and he's the one um, doing most of the skilled labor. So he's doing a lot of the tile work. Um, mm-hmm. He's working on tile work right now because we're we still are redoing our master bathroom. You know how the 
the parent space always waits till the last, right? So we got yep. the kids' bathrooms <laughs> done, and now we're working on the master. So he does it in time after work. Um, I'm usually with the kids. So our partnership is I usually do a lot of the designing, the decision-making, the choosing, and then he does a lot of the implementing, and it works. Um, you know, I can get in and lay tile with him, but sometimes I'm more in his way than if I just keep the kids out of his hair. You know, when we first got into knee-deep in it, um, I was pretty busy, and I had to step away from my business for a little bit. Um, and I, I do a lot of work with Dixie Bell Paint, and they mm -hmm. um, fortunately knew what we were doing, and they allowed me that time to um, step away a little bit. And there was a probably a good three or four months when we were transitioning between our two houses that I had to really slow up my productivity, and I stopped taking customer orders where I would do what I could when I could, but... Um, wasn't tied to anyone's, um, you know, a schedule or commitment to customers. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we're kind of on the other side of that now, but there, it, there was a lot of compromise to get this done and still, you know, I was scared. Like, will my business come back from me taking this little bit of step away? I didn't abandon it completely. Um, if anything, I used that time to involve my followers in our building process. So I did a lot mm -hmm. of Facebook lives where I would share what it looked like and what we were working on. I would share photos of our house with nothing in it and our kids sitting in the middle of this drywalled room doing their homework and, you know, hanging out in our camper while our contractor was working. And there were things like that that I loved sharing with our followers because so many people could relate or they want to build and knowing that real side of it was... Uh, was nice to be able to share. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of, I mean, that's just such a interesting part, um, you know, actually building a home, especially from scratch, uh, starting from the ground up. And uh, I'm sure a lot of folks enjoyed seeing that happen and still do as you continue to work on it. Let's talk about your furniture finishing business. And I always like to ask this question because I think it's interesting and our listeners enjoy this, but how did you get into refinishing? So it, we have rental property in Sacramento and we had a really bad experience where one of our tenants had left the property and they just destroyed it. And we went in and had to clean it all out. They left all their belongings behind, kind of abandoned it. And um, in California, you can't just dispose of their belongings. You have to store them um, and try to make contact and get them to claim it. And um, so we stored all the stuff, which included all their furniture. I ended up leaving it in my garage for like a year. And I came back when I finally could look at it again after we'd you know, gotten over the initial heartbreak of having to fix this house back up. And I had all this furniture and was like, you know, what do I do with it? I, I grew up frugal. I'm a frugal girl and I couldn't put it all out on the curb or, you know, so I looked up painting it. it. It had damage to the finishes. And so I read, you know, when I first started painting, it was sparse as far as knowledge out there. There wasn't a lot of people that were sharing techniques and information at the time. There were just a few that were doing videos and a little bit of blogging. It just, um, the world hadn't quite opened up at that point. Um, and so I read what I could and I went to the craft store and bought whatever cheap supplies I thought were the right ones. And I painted it and, um, and it looked nice. And my husband said, nope, it's not coming in our house because he knew where it came from, <laughs> that it was from our rental. He said, nope, I want it gone. Get rid of it. And so over this situation. And so I sold it. And then, uh, you know, I did another and I sold it. And then I, I uh, actually had a repeat customer who suggested that I take my 
you know, come up with a business name and put it on social media. And I was like, there's a market for this stuff. What? Okay. And I did it, um, you know, put myself on Facebook and I started lurking in all the groups, you know, all the painting groups I was watching Mm -hmm. and soaking up whatever information I could. Um, And then it wasn't for probably a year in that I started actually posting and sharing my own work. But I was in for a while just watching everybody trying to, you know, when I go in something, I'm all in Mm -hmm. and trying to just educate myself with everything I could find. And and it just grew. It just grew leaps and bounds really quickly. I started getting um, a lot of local customers and my following on my social media was growing and I was trying to learn how to... um, manage that aspect so it's crazy to look back on now because from painting in my garage to where it is now i never could have even imagined uh, that's exciting to see uh, that how your business is unfolded and to such success and tell us about your creative background before refinishing furniture have you always been a creative person i've always been a creative person but i didn't know how to exercise that so i have a degree actually in finance and sociology and i worked for the state of california so I was more of a numbers girl um, mm-hmm. before this. And uh, so I never had found a medium that really suited me. Um, I took art classes in college whenever I could uh, as an elective, you know, if I had the opportunity. But, um, you know, by no means was it was it professional or most of this is self-taught. Yeah, what a benefit that you have to have that finance background uh, in business. Because a lot of times, I mean, truth be told, a lot of times, you know, when you look at different types of abilities that we don't always encompass as much as we'd like to encompass to have a successful business. I mean, sometimes creatives are extremely creative, successful in creating, but maybe it's more of a challenge to run the business side of it. They actually, you know, have the ability to look at it and say, I've got to be able to make a profit at what I'm doing for this to, uh, for the longevity of the business. Be able to have that in your background is just, that's, that's, uh, that's tremendous. That is so true. I think it's been helpful. And I can sit down and know how to file our tax returns. I can whip up a set of business tax returns with, without an issue, things like that. Um, keeping books are uh, is something I'm pretty strong at. So, so yeah, I absolutely agree. Everybody, I, you know, of course, I've got my weaknesses. And there's a lot of times when I, I know what I should be doing is not what I am doing. Some of my weaknesses are I'm not great in the technical aspect. So I did build my own website but I built it myself to this point and it's to the point where I need to hire it out to somebody else. And that's not my strength at all. I literally dread working on it because it's something I have to figure out along the way. Um, so I totally value, at least I don't have to do that with my tax. <laughs> well, that's, that, that is something that I think a lot of people do dread. <laughs> they don't like that yeah. part. Oh, my, I, I still, I dread it. I didn't say I enjoy <laughs> it just because I know how to do it. doesn't mean I look forward to it. That's true. That's true. We appreciate that <laughs> clarification there, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's discuss a few of your pieces. Um, Let's start with you refer to what you refer to as your favorite piece. I, I, I'm really eager to, to have you uh, talk about this because um, you actually created a piece uh, a number of years ago that you really liked and then you sold it and then you regretted it. And so you've created yeah. another piece like what you had created at that point. And certainly correct me if I'm wrong in that interpretation. No, you're absolutely right. So I did a piece back in 2017 and I really liked it. I, it was a really cool finish with patina paint and metallics and 
it came out beautiful. And at that point we were still living in our old house and, and I struggled with it. Like, I, I love this finish. I just don't have a place for it. And what do I do? Do I keep a piece of furniture just for the sake of keeping it? You know, and, and I would think in my head, like, I, I can't do this. I can't love them all so much that I want to keep them. I got to let it go. And, and I sold it. And, um, and I regretted it ever since then. I was like, oh, there's never going to be another one. What did I do? I wish I had it. And so I had a buffet in my house. Um, and I was like, when we move to our new house, I'm going to refinish that buffet. And I felt intimidated because it had to live up to the standards of that original finish that I had. That was what I had in my head. It had to be that level so I was nervous that I was just going to disappoint myself. So it sat in my garage for about a year after we moved this this uh, buffet. It was this beautiful Drexel buffet, one of the nicest pieces I've had. And I kept it for myself and, um, you know, solid mahogany, just um, just gorgeous. So I finally had some time where I was like, OK, I, I'm going to tackle this buffet. And I must have reworked that patina probably three or four times to get it because patina is a natural process. Uh, Patina paint has metal particles in the paint and you spray it with a reactive spray and it actually corrodes the metal that's in the paint. Mm. Um, and that's a natural process. So you don't have always total control. You've got to, mm -hmm. you know, spray it and walk away and see what the metal does. And I would come back and there would be spots that were too light. Some were too dark. So I've got to rework those spots. And, and it took me quite a while to get it to where I felt like it was. Um, and I don't know how the first one happened. The first one happened just by pure luck I think because I didn't know what I was doing but I feel like it finally came around to where it was it was uh, a finish I was happy with and so that's in my in my dining room now the replica of the piece that got away and I, <laughs> I really love it I really do I don't feel bitter about it so that's a good thing well I want to let our listeners know that uh, they can check out the pieces Brandy is discussing on our podcast by going to the zebrablog.com and clicking on Brandy's feature page. You know, I'm actually looking at the piece that you, the, your first piece, and then I'm looking at the piece that you did, uh, that you've kept. And it's really funny because it's like, I go back and forth. I'm like, now I really want to figure out which one I think is best. Yeah. But each one, every time I decide on one, I go back to the other one. I'm like, no, but I like this thing but then i go back to I, it's just and that's that's a compliment because i'm sure i know it's got to be really difficult to replicate something especially something that has such um artistic you know expression throughout the whole piece but it's just it, you've done a great job i mean it's really both of them are really really beautiful yeah i'm with you that i look at them and i'm like i you know there's things i like better about one and things i like better about another i just did um I, I did a vanity recently and it was a purple vanity with some bold flowers. And then I got a couple orders for that same finish on other vanities after that. So I ended up doing three of them back to back wow. and on each one I can look at it and say, um, Oh, I like this vanity better, but I like that mirror, but I like this flower <laughs> placement. So each one, it, even done in the same finish by the same artist mm -hmm is totally unique and totally different. And that's what I love about this is, is you can ask me to do the same finish and even the same person with the same hands, it's never going to be the same twice. You're exactly right. Well, now you talked about uh, the patina. It looks like there's a lot of blending that took place. How many colors uh, were incorporated into this project, do you think? Oh gosh, I probably got, I have four in there, I think. I've got a silver, mm -hmm. a little bit of silver metallic, and then um, more of a warm champagne metallic 
and then the uh, bronze patina paint, and then there's a little bit of copper in there, and then it's, it's over a base of some flat colors, but the, there's a few metallics in there, and then the patina paint's in there. Um, and trying yeah. to get them to meld together to just the right amount of metallic, to just the right amount of patina, um, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. I bet. Well, it's sort of, um, I guess you would classify this as an ombre effect. What's interesting for me and my, my reflection of it is that it, it sort of has a, uh, I call it kind of a Monet-ish effect. You know, it's it's very impressionistic in style. And I like it because you can see the artistic work done. Uh, and, and we're going to talk a little bit in a few minutes about a couple of other pieces. They have a blending that's a different type of a blending. It's such a smooth blending. You see no line. You don't even see the break between where the colors change. But this is more, again, this is my interpretation, more of an impressionistic style that, that was achieved in this. I love that description. I feel like you're right on. Um, if you zoom in uh, to some up-close photos, you can see that every brush stroke matters. Every brush stroke has a direction and a pattern um, that brings the two colors into each other. So it is very impressionistic. Um, and the brush strokes are very deliberate. Well, I want to discuss um, two pieces that you mentioned on the blog and the question and answer blocks that uh, that our listeners can go and check out. You know, we asked you what your favorite furniture style is, and you shared two styles and showcased those styles. And I, I'd like for you to describe the style uh, so we can kind of get that defined. So maybe those that are new to furniture finishing will get an education on these two specific styles that you're going to share. And then I want you to tell about the pieces that you refinished. And again, folks can go out there and look at these, but the first one is the Hollywood Regency style. Tell us about what that is, what defines that, and then tell us about the Re uh, Hollywood Regency style piece that you refinished. Um, so Hollywood Regency is a really cool time period. It overlaps mid-century just a little bit, but it's not quite into the ornate styles that came up in the 60s and 70s. Um, so it still could be considered a mid-century style, but it's it's fairly clean lines, um, a lot of fluting, fluted legs, um, tapered legs, still fairly flat fronts, not a lot of curves, not a lot of curves, a lot of straight lines. Um, so it's got the simplicity of the mid-century, but just a little bit of detail to it that just, I'm drawn to it. I'm just drawn to that time period. It still has the quality of manufacturing before they figured out, you know, mass producing. And it's not overcomplicated. It's just got the right amount of detail. And so that's one of my favorite styles. And I don't think I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm alone in that sometimes. A lot of people prefer the curvature, but I really like the flat you know, the clean straight line, my mm. mind likes symmetry and there's symmetry in it. Tell us about the piece that you did um, that again, folks can go out and look at, which is a Hollywood Regency style uh, refinished piece. So the Hollywood Regency style piece that I did, it's a gray piece and it starts out, it's a gradation uh, with a dark gray at the bottom and moves up into a lighter gray at the top. And I used sort of a, a frame in my blending to kind of frame out some of the drawer details on there. It's, you know, it's my style. I, I didn't find my style. My style found me in that it was a technique that I did. And people continuously told me that I did it well. And I kept getting requests for it. But it's that, um, you know, where one color blends into another and you can't see the definition between the colors. That's just something my eye is drawn to. Um, the smoothness, the symmetry. Um, and so those smooth blends were something that people told me that I did well and that's become what I'm 
most recognized for is those smooth blended transitions. Um, but on that piece there, you can see it's got the tapered legs of the Hollywood Regency style. It's got a very square shape. It's got beautiful hardware. The hardware on Hollywood Regency is like old jewelry. It's just, um, it's got faux keyholes on it. Just the little details. That's what I enjoy. It's not over the top, but it's just got those details that draw your eye to it. It's, it's so much fun to look at. Uh, I, I just like the other two pieces that we were talking about earlier. I've I've looked at it and studied it and try to figure out where those lines are and I can't find them. <laughs> so Good. that means I did my job well. <laughs> you did. It's it is it is just amazing. As, as I go on, I feel more pressure because I know people are zooming in on those photos looking for them. So I have to hide those transitions even more now. Yeah, for sure. Especially when you become an expert at it. Now, this may be a crazy question, but from somebody who, who's not done ombre uh, before, is it, are you, you're up close painting, but are you constantly going back and looking or are you just continually right up on it, just working your way uh, through the process? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten better at it as I've gone, but I do have to get up and step away and look. And then you have to look in different lighting, too, because sometimes the light will catch your brush strokes a certain way that you'll see, you know, that you didn't see working on it up close. So for the most part, I sit up close on a piece and I, and I work small areas at a time, but I do get up and step away from it so I can see it from a different perspective and in a different light. Um, and there are times when I will go back to it after it's dry and rework it yet again. I rework a lot of spots until they're, you know, until there's something that I feel like I could stand by. Did you not regret selling this piece? <laughs> um, I love that one, but I, it goes back again to if I kept all the ones <laughs> that I really like, and I've got a lot of furniture in my house that I've done. My house is 3,500 square feet, so we, we've been able to keep a lot, but if I kept them all, I'd be a hoarder. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You know, there's satisfaction in handing a piece over to a customer and they send you a piece, a picture of it in their room and they, you know, they feel proud of it. That is, oh man, that's the most gratifying feeling is, is having a customer that's proud and wants to show their piece off. I don't know. I go back and forth between mine, 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 and, and just feeling like I gave someone a gift at the yeah. same time. I think that's the mark of a true artist, really, uh, because it's essentially like canvas painting. Um, you certainly have some of those pieces in your home, but to be able to put up a piece and someone buy it, or whether it's commissioned, you did it for them because they requested or because they saw it hanging for sale for them to buy it. What a compliment, you know, to buy it, hang it on their wall. Yeah. Same thing with furniture, to be able to put this piece, you know, in their home uh, there's, there's no greater compliment with respect to your artistic abilities than to be able to see that. I'm sure that's true for, for everybody who's a furniture refinisher. Um, a lot of my pieces too, I keep a stockpile of unfinished pieces. We have a um, building on our property and I, I keep unfinished pieces and then customers can come to me and say, I'm looking for a dresser. Here are the colors in my room. So, and then this, this, um, Hollywood Regency piece is one example where we design these finishes together, me and the customer will sit down and look at pictures of their room and they'll send me pictures from Pinterest and I'll send them, you know, a few pictures of what's in my head. And, and so we design them together where it's a collaboration. So I, I feel like even on that piece, I couldn't even take credit for the full finish myself because it was, it was brainstorming with another person. And mm -hmm. I do that a lot with my customers where um, I can't even take credit for the finishes because sometimes they'll come to me with a color and we just we run with ideas from there working together so yeah. 
this is just as much hers that it, as it is mine. Well, the next style you mentioned that you favor is the Empire style. No, that's popular with a lot of people, but if you would, Brandy, describe it and then tell us about the piece that you refinished in this Empire style. So Empire is, I, I thought it was funny when, when I saw my answer to this question. It's got a lot of the same clean lines, flat fronts that a Hollywood Regency could have. And then it's just got that little bit of detail again. So uh, an Empire usually has a curved leg. Um, sometimes it can have a curve at the top, um, but it's got a, a very ornate leg. Um, and the rest of the piece is fairly flat. So, so it went back to that just a fairly flat, simple piece with symmetry and clean lines and just the, the, just the right amount of detail. And that's what Empire is. So I saw, you know, that was some self-reflection there. I saw some, <laughs> what my eye goes to is, is uh, just that little bit of detail which mm -hmm. I could, where you can really appreciate the detail on it because it's not so overdone. Um, and I love those curved legs that Empire has. Just uh, They've got a, gosh, I couldn't even describe it. You really have to look at the picture, but look at the legs on that piece and, um, and you'll see that is definitive of the Empire style. They're pretty heavy pieces as well, aren't they? Yeah, they are beefy. They are beefy. So it's not a graceful skinny leg at all. It's, you know, they're just big and massive and quality made. Going back to the original ones are some of the best quality pieces I've done. Well, now this piece that we featured on the blog, which is an Empire style dresser, uh, it's a yellow piece. It's really creative. Even the hardware is, is very unique. But you'll have to tell us uh, about the what the effects were, what kind of technique you used on creating this look, because it, it is, it appears to me, it's tonal, it's one color, but it has uh, some depth to it, even within itself. So how did, how did you achieve that? Yeah, this piece has kind of a funny story, and I'll tell that to you really quick, is that um, another painter uh, and I were going to do a live together, and she dared me to do a color that I was really uncomfortable with. <laughs> and I said, I'm really uncomfortable with yellow. I just don't do yellow. It doesn't appeal to me. And then this ended up being one of my favorite pieces I've ever done. So it's in my own house. And I thought that was a statement to, you know, good things happen when you leave your comfort zone. And she yeah. forced me out of my comfort zone. And I ended up with a piece that I, I look at it and I treasure that story and the lesson that that's behind it. So what I did is I took a, a mustard color and I actually toned it to, I toned it to a darker shade and I toned it to a lighter shade. And then um, because it's the original mustard color, when you blend it into itself um, in different tones, it always coordinates, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, because I made a darker shade and a lighter shade of it and then it, it coordinated. It was a very flat front and I used shading a lot to create depth and interest um, where there isn't any otherwise. And that was what I did here is I took a very just flat front drawer and added a little bit of shading with a darker tone and a lighter tone um, to frame them out. And then with the interest of the hardware, that was all it needed. It's not um, over the top. It's just it's very much like the style itself. It's just got the right amount of interest. Oh, certainly is beautiful. Thanks for sharing the refinishing details about your favorite pieces, Brandy. Our listeners always love hearing refinishers discuss their work. As an accomplished artist, Brandy, you are most likely often asked by those stepping into the business or those like yourself that have been refinishing for years, but are always eager to learn from others and continue to grow. 
What have you learned over the years that you would like to share with our listeners that you believe will encourage them? We asked you this question on our blog, and we wanted to take the time to discuss them here on the podcast. And your your first bit of advice is investing in the right tools make a huge difference. Uh, develop that, if you would, for us. Yeah, um, and this was something that I learned along the way that I love sharing with people because when I first started painting, I didn't know the difference between quality products and not quality products. Um, you know, there you get what you pay for with anything and, and paint and products are the same way that if you're going to do this and do it um, well, it's important to have the right tools in your toolbox. And that's everything from using a good quality paint. And that can be any brand. I'm not necessarily advocating it has to be any certain brand. Um, but finding a paint that really works for your painting style is very important. Finding the right tools, the right brushes, having different brushes for different jobs um, natural bristles versus synthetic and understanding the difference between buying a, um, you know, 50 cent chip brush and then investing in a nicer quality brush. The results you're going to get are vastly different. And that goes from everything from your paint, to your brushes, to sprayers and sanders. And you, you get what you pay for that. I, yeah. I just keep going back to that, that if this is something you intend to do in, in uh, you know, in the long run, um, as, as a hobby or as a business, to make sure that you've got the right tools to do it the best way you can. We would come to that conclusion as well with respect to our, our paintbrushes, but that's why we have so, uh, from the beginning, emphasized the importance of having application-specific brushes so that the brushes that you're using, good quality, high-quality brushes, uh, are able to help you in the process of achieving the look that you're trying to achieve. And having brushes that are specifically designed for those applications actually makes the job a lot easier and allows you to be even more creative really it's not a distraction it's a part of an extension of your hand so that's that's great advice oh i totally agree that's a great description your next uh tip is really insightful as well and you said don't be afraid to put yourself out there share your work ask questions tell us more about that tip so I feel like a lot of people are hesitant to share their work, um, and, I, and I'm going to use social media as my example here, but putting it out there on social media, um, you know, putting it out there in a blog, photos with your friends, photos to your customers, anywhere you can, anybody who's willing to look at your work, share your photos with them. And people are, are afraid to put it out there because they're afraid of the criticism. And here's how I think of criticism. I think of criticism as a tool. When people criticize my work. That is just as much a gift to me as a compliment. Um, so learn how to take criticism and and I can think back on some of the most negative comments I've gotten and how I use them to turn it and make my work better. If there's things that people repeatedly say, you know, I don't care for this, you don't do this well, I use that to find my style of painting. Mm -hmm. That just as much helped me to figure out what what do people like that I do. Okay, this gets, you know, only two people like this, but 200 people like this other one. That's something that I do well. And so um, I had to overcome that hurdle. And I, I very much care too much what other people think I am. I wish I didn't do that. But in this case, I think, uh, I think it helped me to look at um, those judgments and really use them as a tool. It's free marketing advice, um, free marketing research that people are giving you. You're using these groups and these feedback to figure out what your painting style is and what you do well. So I say overlook all those naysayers, get over that hurdle and be able to look at those negative comments and criticism and take that um, and use it to your advantage as a painter and may use it to become better at what you do. 
So overall, I found that I found that there's more support out there than negativity. But either way, um, if that's the biggest risk to it, then know that it's a tool for you. Yeah, I think it's it's such a reaction for us when we see anything negative, especially when it's in the art field, because so much of art is subjective in many respects. Some people like one color, some people like another color. Same thing with styles. But I think when we see that negative comment and it's so easy for us just to get defensive when in actuality, what you just said really is so powerful because it's a perspective changer and how you perceive that comment instead of taking it as a negative judgment up against your work. It's like, okay, now let me, that's somebody's perspective. And, and, you know, you brought this up. It's so important to, um, to convey this as well. You mentioned this in your comment uh, on the blog, but you, you talk about the fact that the painting community is a very supportive community and that that's what at least we've seen that and that's why it's so much fun to be a part of this community is that it's like everybody wants to see others achieve success in this and so there's a lot of cheering on of one another throughout the process so when you see a negative comment you know instead of getting defensive about it you know take and take a few steps back and look at it and think through that comment that is like i said earlier that's a perspective changer that is excellent yeah, I really like that. So you guys have been around for a while to see um, the growth in this industry and that there is so much more teaching and sharing going on um, now, even versus when I started that I, you know, every person that stops and comments on one of my photos to just say beautiful or just leave a heart, that's a moment they took out of their day to stop and give me something. And so I really value, I don't want to only focus on the negativity because there's so much positivity out there of people just being supportive and um, complimentary. And um, and I, I just appreciate every one of those is what keeps me going and keeps me motivated to want to keep sharing. So there's so much value and encouragement out there. And I, I, I want to thank everybody who's even listening for every time they've stopped and said thank you and given a heart and a like and a thumbs up or whatever it is that each one of those has touched me and encouraged me. That leads really well into your next uh, bit of advice, and that is to immerse yourself in learning. Yeah. So, you know, when I go into something, I go all in, and there's so much information out there in the painting world. There's so much information as it's opened up and people are more and more willing to share. There's YouTube videos dedicated just to what we do, and there's um, bloggers and um, Facebook lives and social media groups, and it's such a wide community, but there is so much information out there on any technique, um, people trying new things. Like I like to think that what I do is, is saving people time. I will go out there and make the mistakes for you beforehand so that when you do it, you can do it the right way the first time. Um, and there's a lot of time saver tips out there, but you know, go out there and research whatever technique it is you're doing and see the different ways that people have done it successfully but immerse yourself. Look for that those learning opportunities out there. I usually say that I think it's like putting an outfit together where we're all given the same basic black dress, the same basic tools, and then it's how we choose to accessorize it that makes the difference. And that's where yeah. our artistic eye kind of comes into it. But you can go out there and learn all these different techniques and how you put them together is what's going to make you unique as an artist. But take advantage of that. People are willing to teach you and they've made these mistakes before. Check out YouTube, check out their blogs, check out all this stuff. That's supporting another artist as well, um, you know, using their teaching to, to learn your craft. Well, and I, I like what you say, too, because you said uh, there's no point you cannot recover from with a new coat of paint, right? 
you don't take it too serious. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, that's a hard lesson to learn. Is some you know, it always looks worse before it looks better, right? Is you have to just be willing to get through that ugly phase and trust yourself a little bit that you know how to recover. I think that's uh, that's where confidence comes from. Is that you've made mistakes and you've recovered from them. That you know, no matter what you do, you know how to recover from it. That's an expertise right there. Well, the next bit of advice is really good as well. Don't try to paint like someone else. Yeah, I think people are, you know, when you're looking for your style, you're looking out there to try to duplicate somebody else's style. And that may not be yours. That may not be what suits you best. So, um, so you know, I say I didn't find my style. My style found me. Let your style find you. Uh, figure out what you do best um, instead of trying to duplicate somebody else's. And you may have something totally unique that blows this world apart, which, you know, that's what we're all always waiting for, right? So, so no, do do you? It, it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. If you if you only ever paint like somebody else, or if you only ever paint white, that's the one I hear the most. Is people only request white? Well, if you only ever do white, people are only ever going to request white, mm. um, because they don't know what your range is. So you've got to show people that you have range, and that involves a a, a level of risk to step outside your comfort zone. And show them that you do colors and you do transfers and you do blending and you do layering. And Because um, if they don't know that you've got those capabilities, then they're always just going to request the white. Yeah, and that may be somewhat of a business decision, or at least the fear side of it may be from a business side, you know, um, afraid that they'll create something that's so unique that others won't be drawn to. But I would imagine there's a process there, you know, of maybe working on those unique styles that you're trying to develop, maybe while still doing some of the basic, um, you know, stuff that you know is going to sell in your community. And I would, I would imagine you would just have to take and figure out, you know, how much time that you need to spend in order to continue to stay successful and lucrative. Yeah, there's just as much value. So in range, you know, by showing range, that means showing that you can do the basics and you can do simple mm -hmm. finishes, but you could also do the very exotic finishes. So um, and everything in between, too. So I think what you said is a great point, that doing a mix of both, you know, put out five pieces in a, you know, very common and finish that has more mass appeal, and then throw in one in there that has, you know, something more daring to it. And and then people will be able to see that you've got range, mm -hmm. um, that you can do from A to Z and then everything in between. So just throw one out there every once in a while. What I always tell myself is, I do not have a piece to date that has not sold. Some of them sit around for longer than others. They always find their home. So it may take a little while, but you've, you know, sometimes you just need that piece for your portfolio too. Sometimes it's just a portfolio piece where you needed it to show that you can do this style. And now you've got it out there. You've got your photos of it. If you end up repainting it, then it served its purpose. But more often than not, they find a home. Well, I have to warn people this last bit of advice is going to require a little bit of patience. <laughs> and all and not all of us have a lot of patience, but your your last bit of advice is really good to to close on, but you say your finish is only as good as your prep. Explain what you mean by that. What you start with as your base that defines the rest of your finish as well. So if you don't take the time to clean it and degrease it and get rid of any chipping or peeling mm -hmm. in the finish, then everything you lay on top of it is laid on top of grease and dirt and it's laid on top of chipping and peeling. 
Um, so you have to learn how to read your piece. What does it need? Some pieces are going to be bleeders. And if you don't correct that in your prep, then that's going to be something that plagues you throughout your entire finish. It's going to continuously bleed through your paint. Those are when the, the tannins from your wood start leaching through your paint and discoloring mm -hmm. your paint. That's going to plague you through that entire finish. And even in, in the life of the piece, it will continue to discolor over the life of it. If your surface was abnormally slick and you don't put down a gripping primer, um, or give it a scuff sand, then that finish is going to chip and peel um, as you use it. As you put a candlestick on top of it, it's going to pull your paint off the top. Um, so, so your prep is really you laying the base for this finish. I have to say I probably spend more time prepping a piece than I do actually painting it. And that's, that's a testament to how important it is, whether it's um, patching veneer, gluing, you know, repairs, filling holes, sanding smooth spots where, you know, bites have been taken out of it. All of that adds to the quality of your final finish and skipping those steps, it almost takes away from any time that you would spend painting that piece in the first place. Well, and I think, you know, it's so important to realize that once that piece is sold and goes out the door, you want that piece to remain as it was uh, I mean, you don't want anything to happen to it that was because of something that you missed out in the process, like those tannins bleeding through or chipping taking place that shouldn't be happening after the piece is sold. So that's, that's really good advice. I think that struggle is that at least so many that I've chatted to, you know, when you ask them what the least favorite part is, it's the prep. I mean, prep <laughs> is a, a difficult. Oh, always. Yeah, it's like asking somebody, do you do you want to go clean your house? No, nobody wants to go clean your house, but you know you do it because you have to, and that's the same thing with nobody likes prep. Yeah. If if there was anything I would hire out, it would be prep. Um, <laughs> I hate it. I hate doing it. But then I always want to send a piece home with a customer, knowing that it's going to have longevity. Some of these pieces I'm working on are fifty, a hundred years old, and I want them to have another fifty or hundred years, sure. of looking just as great as the day I sent it home. So. I don't want to put my name on something that I feel like after a couple of years, I wish I could hide it. Although there are a couple of those. <laughs> you learn from those too, don't you? Exactly. Everything is a learning experience. Exactly. Well, I think a lot of the furniture finishers that have been um, working in the business for a while have learned, you know, maybe some have learned harder, the harder way. Uh, but I think most have learned that the importance of prepping, but I really love this, especially for those that are, diving into the furniture finishing business because it's so easy to skip over it because you're so eager, you're so excited, you can't wait to put the creative paint, uh, creative flair all over that piece and make it unique to your style. But you got to take uh, take key to um, to do the prepping right. So that's really good advice. You know, Brandy, you are a, certainly yeah. a wealth of information and you're so kind and patient to share what you've learned. We love that. And I know our listeners do as well. Share with our listeners how they can reach you. So um, you can find me on Facebook, um, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube um, at Brushed by Brandy on all of those. Um, I also have a website, brushedbybrandy.com, where I blog and share my videos regularly. So um, I welcome follows on any of those channels, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube, and then um, onto my blog as well. You can subscribe, and then any time I put out a new um a new blog or tutorial, you'll be the first to know. Thanks so much for your time, Brandy. And we really look forward to having you back on again soon. 
Thank you, Elaine. I always enjoy talking to you. You're a wealth of information, too, and you bring to the conversation so much information. Um, I think what you guys are doing is phenomenal to put this information out there and give artists this channel to learn from. So thank you for doing this, and thank you for having me on today. Great. Thank you, Brandy. If you have a refinishing tip that you would like to share, send me an email at lane at enjoyzebra.com. Put refinishing tip in the subject line and describe the tip in the email. Today's refinishing tip comes from Sarah Hollister-Jessick with Surrey Lane Home. Sarah is known for her colorful creativity and has developed her own unique style that brings a smile with every piece. Sarah shares how she cleans her paintbrushes. And we are happy and honored to say among the brushes in her toolbox are our very own zebra paintbrushes. Listen in as she provides the details on brush cleaning. Hi there, I'm here to talk about how to clean brushes to keep them for a long time when you're using a water-based product. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, I learned to clean brushes from my aunt. She taught us how to use ceramics and she had a beautiful collection of brushes. And when we painted, of course, the cleanup process of cleaning your brushes was something that's really important. And she had us use a special soap. And so I learned from her how to keep brushes in great shape. I even have some brushes that are now over 25 years old because I learned at an early age about keeping brushes clean so I would have them. The secret that I use now is I use a shampoo and conditioner. I actually use the same shampoo and conditioner that I put on my own hair. So what I'm doing is once I'm done with my paint and I'm ready to clean up, I take the shampoo and I put it in my hand and start washing my brush. And once that is clear, I go ahead and put conditioner in it and then I leave it for a couple minutes and then I rinse it out just like I would when I clean my own hair. Um, this has been used on all my brushes, whether it's real hair on the brushes or synthetic material synthetic material and it really just keeps the brushes in great shape keeps them from breaking and it also keeps them really soft which I really like when I'm painting a paintbrush is one of your most important tools and it's just a great way to keep them in tip-top shape I treat all my brushes the same um, from the very inexpensive ones to my very expensive ones and this process of the shampoo and conditioner has kept them all in really nice shape and it's really um i think an easy process because i do keep the shampoo and conditioner by my sink and pump containers and so it's there and ready to go so I'm, when i'm done with a project i have the easy cleanup task of keeping the brushes or cleaning the paint off the brushes so they end up being able to have that nice soft feel once they are dry and i do always put my brushes in a copper container facing up i never put them down with the bristles touching something thanks sarah for sharing this tip with us you know if you would like to learn more about sarah and her work she can be found on instagram and facebook at surrey lane home surrey is spelled s-u-r-r-e-y so again that's surrey lane home 
Our April contest, The Zebra Review, is still accepting entries through April 30th. This month's theme is Home Sweet Home. And we're asking you to enter pieces that you have refinished and kept for yourself. The pieces just have to have been refinished from January 2019 through April 30th of 2020. We're asking you to post your pieces with the hashtag the zebra review home that's hashtag the zebra review home our quarterly contest zebra collective is still underway and it's all about the theme of spring spring colors transfers or exposed wood tag your pieces zebra collective that's hashtag zebra collective and you have until april 23rd to enter as many of you know we are currently hosting a support small businesses giveaway each week we ask a question and you can participate by answering the question in your Instagram stories. You can go to our Instagram account Zebra Painting or Zebra Home Painting to learn more. The winner each week gets a $50 gift card from a local business of their choice. Many of you have inquired about purchasing our Zebra paintbrushes in kit form online. Well, we are happy to tell you that our blog shop is open. We have several really exciting kits at affordable prices as well and we offer free shipping to U.S. customers. We regret that at this time, free shipping is not available to our friends outside of the United States. Uh, recent price increases have made that an extreme challenge, so we will let you know when and if that changes. We are blessed with an incredible team here at Zebra. We are often referred to as the Zebra Crew. We are so excited that our very own VP of Sales, Bree Hansen, had her beautiful little girl, Emma, back in February, and the whole family is doing well. Well, Bree is back to work, and we are excited to announce that we will be featuring her on our Zebra Home Painting Instagram account and Facebook account with her new crafting videos. They will be called Zebra Home Crafting with Bree. The first one will debut next week, and you will absolutely love her creative, fun, and unique ideas, so stay tuned. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Zebra Vlogs Before and After Furniture Finishing Podcast. Today's episode is also featured on thezebrablog.com along with contact information for today's guest. Your comments and suggestions for future episodes are always welcome and we encourage you to share those by clicking on the podcast slide in our header at thezebrablog.com. That's zebra with an I blog.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and happy refinishing.